0: Welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where PGA and LPGA players,
1: legends, and the top instructors in the game share their insights and playing lessons. Join Chris every Tuesday night as he talks with the greats of the game. Tonight's show is sponsored by the French Lick Resort, the PGA Tour Superstore, the Bobby Jones Apparel Company, Ben Hogan Golf, 2under, TaylorMade Golf, and golf pride. Now, here's your host,
0: Chris Mascaro.
2: Good evening, folks, and welcome to Next on the T. Thank you so much for being here. It's always a privilege to be a part of your lives over the next 90 minutes and a part of your weekly golfing content. Before we get started, I want to give a shout out to one of our new sponsors, the Mclemore which is a beautiful community resort and golf course, just 35 minutes outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee on Lookout Mountain. And folks, you really got to see this place to believe it. Go online to com. Everything about what they have up there is beautiful. The golf course is co-designed by our good friends Bill Bergen and Reese Jones. Our friend Kip Henley said on Twitter, outside of Pebble Beach, it's the most beautiful 18th hole he's ever seen. See why he says that by checking out the the course and the resort online at themaclemore.com. Tonight, my first guest is one of the great ball strikers of all time, and that's Tim Simpson. Tim won four times on the PGA Tour. He also had a great playing career at the University of Georgia. In fact, he's in both the Georgia Sports Hall of Fame and the Georgia Golf Hall of Fame. Tonight, I want to talk to Tim about his time at UGA and some of the great players he played with and against during his college golf career. Also, want to talk about what it means to be a great ball striker and what made him so good at it. We'll talk about two of his big seasons out on tour in 1985 and 1990. Also, want to talk about his mental toughness. How was he able to focus on the task at hand and not do what I do, which is get ahead of myself? Like you know, hey, if I only if I can make three pars here on the next on the last three holes, I'm going to break 80 and then go out and double the next hole. Really looking forward to catching up with Tim. He'll join me in just a few minutes. Then we'll round out tonight's show with a return visit from 1991 Open champion Ian Baker Finch. Ian is now one of the great broadcast analysts in the game. We're going to go back and revisit his Open Championship victory and what it was like sleeping on a share of the lead going into that final round with Sevi Ballesteros. Oh, by the way, who had to be the sentimental crowd favorite. He was looming only two strokes back. Ian taught himself the game by watching the Jack Nicholas videos, Golf My Way. So we'll talk about that and what it was like later on when he got out on tour to be able to play in a major with Jack Nicholas. Looking forward to having Ian back on the show. He'll join me about 25 minutes from now. So there you have it, folks. More great stories, tips, and information are coming your way tonight on this edition of Next on the Teen. As always, thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me tonight want to start out by saying hello and thank you to my friends Mitch and Matthew Lawrence and remind you about their great golf shows. Mitch's podcast is called Talking Golf Getaways, which you can stream online at golftripx.com. Also available on Audioboom, Stitcher, and Player.fm. Mitch and his co-host Darren Bunch are going to take you around the U.S. and Canada and teach you about some of the great courses that you may not be aware of and some of the great courses that you wish you had an opportunity to go play. So check out their golf podcast. Again, it's called Talking Golf Getaways and available on GolfTripX.com. Matthew's show is called Backspin Golf. It's my regular Sunday morning, 8.03 a.m. Eastern tee time. You can stream the show live by going online to WLXG.com or download the WLXG app. Matthew features our good friend Perry French in the first segment every week. So a lot of great golf tips and information are coming your way at the top of that show every week. Matthew also has a a bunch of other really spectacular guests. He's a wonderful friend and a fantastic host. And again, his show is called Backspin Golf on ESPN Radio, WLXG and WLXG.com. And folks, this segment of the show is brought to you by our friends at TaylorMade and the TaylorMade TP5 and TP5X golf balls that are played by Ricky Fowler, John Rahm, Rory McIlroy, Dustin Johnson, and Jason Day. It's the hottest tour ball in golf. Now, you know those names. But thousands of other golfers have already made the switch to TP5 and TP5X, and now they're available in high visibility yellow. Are you next to make the switch? Check it all out online by going to TaylorMadeGolf.com for more information. Now back in making his fourth appearance with me here on Next on the TS four-time winner on the PGA Tour, Tim Simpson. Let me remind you about Tim's background. He's from right here in Atlanta, Georgia, played his college golf at the University of Georgia, where he lettered in 1975 and 76. During his time there, Tim was named All-SEC, All-American, and a college golf all-star. Turned pro in 1977, he won four times on the PGA Tour at the 1985 Southern Open, the 1989 USF&G Classic, and back-to-back years at the Walt Disney World Oldsmobile Open in 1989 and 90. He's collected five other professional wins, including five Georgia Opens. He had two top 10 finishes in majors, both in 1990 at the U.S. Open and the PGA Championship. He was named the Comeback Player of the Year in 1989. In 1990, he was named the Georgia Professional Athlete of the Year. 2004, he was inducted into the state of Georgia's Sports Hall of Fame. Two years later, in 06, he was inducted into the Georgia State Golf Association Hall of Fame and named the Comeback Player of the Year on the Champions Tour. Tim is widely regarded as one of the great ball strikers in PGA Tour history, and I'm very honored he is back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Tim, thanks for coming back on the show. Tim has won four times on the PGA Tour at the 1985 Southern Open, the 1989 USF&G Classic, and back-to-back years at the Walt Disney World Ultimobile Open in '89 and '90. He's collected five other professional wins, including five Georgia Opens. He has. Two top ten finishes in majors, going uh, back coming back at the 1990 U.S. Open and the PGA Championship. He was named the Comeback Player of the Year in 1989. In 1990, he was named the Georgia Professional Athlete of the Year. 2004, he was inducted into the State of Georgia Sports Hall of Fame. 2006, he was inducted into the Georgia State Golf Association Hall of Fame and named the Comeback Player of the Year on the Champions Tour. Like I said at the top, Tim is widely regarded as one of the top ball strikers in PGA Tour history, and I'm very honored he is back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Tim, thanks for coming back on the show.
1: Thank you so much, Chris. It's great to be back with you.
2: Tim, I want to start out our time tonight by going back to your days at the University of Georgia. I think when people think about UGA, they think about great football teams, but my goodness, when I was looking back over your career there and some of the players that uh, that you got to play with and other players that have come through the UGA program, it's a who's who out there. Talk about the great golf tradition at the University of Georgia. Well, it's, it is
1: it is a great tradition there, and I had great teammates. And although I turned pro after two years, it was very, very enjoyable. Uh, The great news is we're all still close. We all still talk frequently on the phone and or text. And uh, I had set up a reunion uh, or was working on a reunion for all of us because we're getting up in years. And it was all set. And then COVID hit. And so we had to put it off. But, uh, you know, my roommate was Chip Beck, who had a great career on the PGA Tour. was on a couple of Ryder Cup teams and shot 59. Uh, still one of the greatest friends of, of my lifetime. <clears throat> Jim Becker was on the team, John Gibbs, Gus Sylvan, uh, Robert Donald, Joe Walter. Uh, and then the year after I turned pro, Griff Moody uh, transferred back in and, of course, was a Walker Cupper and first. Um, Chris Hack took over around 99 or 2000 from Coach Copas and Oh, my gosh. Uh, I think they won a couple of national championships. And uh, I know when we put him into the State Hall of Fame a couple years ago, he said his biggest regret when he signed these players was not getting a a piece of their future action on the PGA Tour. (laughs) No doubt. As of several years ago, uh, players that he had recruited and had joined the PGA Tour had over $98 million in earnings.
3: Wow. Yeah. He's a
1: great guy and a great coach. I love the way he coaches Bob Tway, and I used to talk about it a lot. Of course, Bob was an Atlanta native, but played at Oklahoma State, and he was like, what acts what are good? And, you know, stir and he lets them run. He doesn't overcoach. You know, if if you need some work on your short game, he's like, you know, take a few days off and go home and get with your coach. You know, uh, I really, really admire Chris Hack and Jim Douglas, the assistant coach.
2: And, Tim, there's a lot of great golfing con- uh, golf players coming out of the other programs in the SEC. Talk about some of the guys you played against that were, you know, were there at Florida, there at LSU, there at Auburn when you were competing at Georgia. Uh, you know, it,
1: it goes in spurts, Chris. Um, it's not that every year, you know, you'll have six, eight, ten studs come out of college and join the PGA Tour. It may be three or five years or whatever, but I was in one of those uh, talent-rich eras, uh, as were my peers on my team. Uh, Wake Forest had um, Jay Haas and Curtis Strange. They did pretty good, didn't they? (laughs) Uh, uh, Florida, Florida had Andy Bean. Gary Koch had just graduated. Had Andy Bean and uh, Phil Hancock, who had a stellar uh, amateur career. Um, Houston had Keith Burgess, Ed Fiore, uh, a guy named Robert Hoyt. Oklahoma State had good gracious. Uh, oh, I I don't know, three or four All-Americans. Uh, it, it was just it was just unbelievably. Arizona State had great players. I mean, it, it was just. Uh, it was just a plethora of amazing talent during the mid late seventies
2: Tim. I want to switch gears a little bit one One of the things that you are known widely for is being one of the best ball strikers of all time. Talk about what it means to be a great ball striker and and what did you do in order to acquire that skill
1: well um a whole lot of hard work and um, Bob Rotella who Tom Kite and I have worked with longer than anybody uh, 37 years now. I figured it out early. We were two his first two clients on the PGA tour. He's always very complimentary to other pros that are searching for the perfect swing and going from this coach to that coach. And he says, you know, everybody would agree. Tim's the best iron player in the world. And they say, oh yeah. And, and he would say, you know what? He's worked with the same teacher since he was 14 years old that you've never heard of. You know, and in my era, of course, we didn't have smartphones. And, uh, you know, you could there was no uh, Internet, so you couldn't just zap films to your coach back in Australia or Sweden or wherever he was. So you had to figure it out on your own. And I was kind of like Ben Hogan. I mean, I beat it out of the dirt. And... uh I can remember in 1990 at the British Open, I was paired with uh, Lee Trevino, and he told me, he said, Timbo he said, I finally found somebody that hits as many balls as you. I said, yeah, what's his name? He just this big old kid named Vijay Singh. And I'm like, yeah, well, eventually <laughs> I met him because we'd be the only two out there at dark, you know. And, and looking back, you know, after three back surgeries, you know, I just wore myself out. But I, I didn't have the most beautiful swing. You know, some people have been very complimentary and flattering of it. But I didn't, I didn't have a Tom Percher swing, a Payne Stewart swing, a Tom Weizkaw swing, a Sam Sneed swing, Adam Scott, you know, that are just, you know, make you drool when you watch them. They're so beautiful. But I did have one of the simplest swings ever. You know, and my peers would get on, you know, for a couple of weeks at a time, you know, and win and maybe finish third the second week. I had the ability, when I felt a certain position in my wrist at the top of the swing, I would I, I would get on for six or eight weeks at a time. Uh, the, the reason, the obvious question you would ask me is, well, why didn't you win 25 tournaments? Well, as you know, I wasn't the greatest putter in history. <laughs> you know. You can hit it in there five feet or three feet, but if you miss it it don't look it doesn't look good on the scorecard. But uh anyway, I just kept it simple. I just I kept it simple. You know, and, and I regret making two changes before I made my champions tour debut, uh, after I'd had my brain surgery wrecked the issues with the Lyme's disease or the tremor in my left hand. I, I, I silly, very silly made two changes that I will regret till the day I die. I changed my leg drive, which the first time Sam Snead told Byron, you got to watch this kid hit a golf ball. So Mr. Nelson introduced himself to me when I went in the locker room at his tournament there in Dallas. And he said, Sam said, I got to watch you hit it. When are you going out to the practice tick? you know, and that's like practicing that's like practicing in front of Moses. You know, worked for Jesus. I mean, Byron Nelson watching you. And the very first swing I made, he said, Timmy, don't ever let anybody change your leg drive. He said, You got the most beautiful leg drive I ever saw. And I turned to him and I said, Mr. Nelson, you ought to like it. I learned it out of your book. <laughs> so, you know, I drove my leg very hard laterally, um, you know, a la Tom Lehman. And, uh, Uh, Kenny Perry, you know, and and that leads to dropping it slightly under from the top and and promotes a little draw. I hit it very straight, but when I was playing my best, my ball always fell right to left.
2: So that begs the question, with that kind of compliment from Byron Nelson, why did you change?
1: You know what? I'd gotten fat being out of the game, and... I uh I wasn't disciplined enough to just say, you know what, I'm gonna lose twenty five pounds before I go on the champions tour. And I was I was trying to to I always played with a flat wrist at the top, which the kids are playing with today. But Tiger was really hot, you know, obviously 2000 had his whirlwind year and he cre- you know, he had a cut wrist at the top. Well, I, I think I told you one time before when I was seven years old my left thumb, and I, I have probably 30% mobility, and I can't bend it at the top like everybody else. So I learned to play with a flat wrist, which made an extremely repeatable golf swing, and I could get by with it because I had tremendously strong wrists and forearms. Uh, Hale Irwin played with a flat wrist, um, a, a number of great ball strikers, and it's funny because things revolve in golf and now I'm seeing more and more and more players including her, that have gone back to a flat wrist position at the top uh, and they're getting away from the cup position at the top of the left wrist
2: Tim you mentioned Bob a minute ago talk about the influence and the role that he played in your golf career
1: well the great Carol Mann the LPGA Hall of Famer God bless her we lost her a few years ago she was a dear friend and she came up to me at the Atlanta Classic and I was I was the guy that, you know, that they wrote about, had all this talent, had this work ethic like nobody else, didn't drink, didn't smoke, you know, was totally dedicated, but I wasn't winning. I was somehow self sabotage. And she came up to me and she said, Tim, I met this young PhD from the University of Virginia this past weekend. I heard him speak and oh my gosh, you have to meet this guy. And uh, so I'm like, she said, he just started working with Tom Kite. And I'm like, well, Tom Kite's working with him. I damn sure need to be working with him. And so anyway, I called him and it started one of the greatest friendships of my life. Uh, We don't talk real often anymore, but it doesn't matter if he's sitting with the president. He'll take my call. And he offers me advice. You know, I shoot competition archery. It's the same as golf. You get into bad flaws, and you got to work your rear off to overcome them. And, uh, you know, the same stuff applies. I mean, his stuff applies whether you're pitching a baseball, hitting a golf ball, shooting an arrow, whatever you're doing. And uh, so I continue to work on it.
2: Tim, when I look back at your career, you won the Georgia Open five times. And... You won down at the Callaway Gardens on tour. You know, for a lot of players, playing in front of the home crowd and the you know the expectations and all that sort of stuff from a mental side would be difficult. You seem to thrive on it. Does that something that gave you confidence and momentum, knowing that you had the hometown fans in your pocket?
1: Oh yeah, I think it. I think it works that way for anybody on tour. It Works one or two ways. It worked the other way for me at the Masters. It wasn't that it was my hometown. Obviously, it was in Augusta, and I was from Atlanta. But being a Georgia boy, I put so much pressure on myself to play good. And, I mean, I had no success there. I had a paltry career at the Masters because I would get so psyched out, you know. And every year, every night, Bob and I would work on, it's just another tournament, just 18 sets of tees, 18 holes cutting the green. Just go play. But I'd get out there on the first tee, and oh my gosh, it was like I was in front of a firing squad. But you can use the gallery to work in your favor. And it did so in New Orleans in 89 when I built Norman, or when I beat Norman. Uh, Greg was Tiger in his prime uh, at the time, number one in the world. And Bob and I had come up with a game plan the night before. He said, Timbo, is your wife there? And I said, I said, uh, he he said, well, there'll probably be about four or five people in the gallery pulling for you. Other than that, you know, it's going to be 10,000, assuming Greg's going to win. And we came up with a plan. He said, I just want you to plod along, play your game. Just stay into your game and totally ignore him. And, and, um, you know, just play your game. And Greg and I were good friends. And we joked all the way around and this and that. And it was very obvious the gallery was expecting him to win. I only won once, and that was four years prior. And we were on number 12, 12 or 13 the final day, and we both hit it right over the pin, about 15, 15, 17 feet behind the pin. And he was an inch outside of my ball. So he putted first, and he had a bad putt, but I got a great read off of it, and I center cut it to take the lead. We were tied. And when I did, the whole momentum of the gallery changed. And people started screaming my name and you can do it and you're the man and all of that. And then two holes later, he three-putted and I birdied. Then 16, <laughs> I hit the flag from the fairway. Should have gone in the hole and it was over. And, uh, you know, so the the plan worked out. So you can turn the gallery in your favor. You know, if you just, <clears throat> if you're polite and courteous and appreciative and, you just play your game. You know, they're like, hey, this guy's the underdog. You know, I'm kind of liking him to win. you know. So it worked great for me that week.
2: So talk about that, Tim. That's From a mental side of the game, when you're out there playing, particularly in the situation that you just talked about, right. whether it's Greg Norman or it was Tiger Woods or whoever it was that the crowd was, you know, screaming for, how do you keep all of that and, and shut that out and focus on the task at hand and even when you have a lead and you're, and you're coming down the stretch, how do you focus on that and not get ahead of yourself or not let the the, the cheering crowds take you out of focus? Well,
1: you read a lot today uh, in all different sports of staying into the process and staying out of results. And every sports psychologist on earth talks about that. You start thinking results. This is for the Masters. And if I par the last two, I'm the master champion. You're doomed. It ain't going to be pretty on TV. But Bob created that. That's Bob Rotella 100%. And if you're staying into the process, you know what? Like you're from Atlanta. If you're driving in bumper-to-bumper downtown traffic in the morning or the afternoon, and, and, and you're just thinking about driving versus, oh, my gosh, is the guy on my right going to hit me? Is the guy in front of me going to stomp on the brakes? Am I going to rear-end him? You know, you're going to be a nervous wreck. So it's basically all you can control is staying in the process and doing what makes Chris tick or doing what makes Timbo hit the ball great. you know, kind of deal. And uh, that's become very, very common. The other thing is that we work on so hard, and I challenge you and the viewers to pay attention in ensuing months. Whether it's football, basketball, baseball, you know, last year's World Series was a great example, or golf or tennis. So many times when guys have astounding performance, you know, and they'll interview them and they'll say, Chris, what the heck were you thinking today when you hit four home runs? Pay attention to how many times they say, you know what, I was just having fun. And believe it or not amateurs amateurs have such a difficult time believing this the greatest athletes on earth bob and other sports psychologists work with them on trying less and having fun you know in other words on a 1 to 10 10 meaning you're trying so hard your eyeballs are about to pop out of your head 1 meaning you're asleep you know about a 4 to 5 you will always perform your best <coughs>
2: Take that a step further, Tim, because we hear that a lot. You're right. And, uh, you know, Jack (laughs) Nicholas talks about, you know, how relishing the pressure, because if you're in the if you've got pressure on you, that means that you're in contention to win. So you want to have that pressure. Talk about dealing with that and and learning to become uh, have have pressure be your friend. How do you embrace that?
1: Well, I, I think, Jack, so anyway. And I, I remember um, I was paired with Jack Jr. to Crosby one year. He was my amateur partner. And after we got through, uh, we were actually leading. And, and Jack came over and he said, that's the most excited I've been in years. You know, my son leading the tournament with you. You know, and I'm like, yeah, you forgot about the Masters win a couple of years ago.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: he, he, uh, you know, it. It. Um, I, I don't know. Jack I asked Jack, well I asked Jackie, I said, What does your dad say about pressure? And he said, "You know, Dad tells me that when he when he gets under pressure, when he's in position to win instead of freaking out and thinking the butterflies in your tummy are vultures, you know, um, he tells himself, This is where I want to be, this is what I've worked for, and I'm going to take advantage of the situation. So he turns a negative into a positive. I thought it was brilliant.
2: Agreed. Tim, just a couple of more before I let you go. And I want to take you down memory lane in 1990, because that was a great year for you in the majors. You finished tied for fifth at the U.S. Open at Medina, tied for 12th at the Open Championship at St. Andrews, and tied for eighth at the PGA Championship at Shoal Creek over in Birmingham, not too far from home. Talk about being in the mix for three majors in the same season.
1: Well, the US Open, unfortunately, I'll die never forgetting that one. That that was probably the biggest heartbreak of my um, <clears throat> I led it to halfway point. I became the first player in history to ever reach nine under in US Open competition and I set the course record in the in the midst. And um I was with Steve Elkington and <clears throat> he worked with Butch Harmon at the time, you know, the top teacher in the world and Butch and I were friends and a great, great guy. Still have the utmost respect for him. And when we got through playing on Friday afternoon, Butchie put his arm around me and said, that's the greatest two rounds of, of, of ball striking I've ever seen in my life. And to me, that's one of my all-time compliments that I ever received during my career. Um, what, what happened to me, I missed seven putts under five feet the last two days. And that nemesis, uh, Chris, as you know, was – I kept it so simple, tee to green, but I'd walk on the green and I'd have 50 things go through my head. Um, You know, keep your head down, accelerate, keep the stroke smooth, this and that. Instead of like Bob, Bob teaches putting like you shoot a basketball. You just look and react. You know, your eyes are the camera. They relay it to the computer, which controls your hands and arms. And the computer says, this is how hard you stroke it. And you don't question it. And we do start questioning it, when we get our conscious mind turned on, instead of leaving it to the all-powerful subconscious, that's when bad things happen.
2: Well, Tim, I've got my next guest, Ian Baker Finch, hanging on the line. He's going to join me here in just a moment. And you and I uh, were talking before uh, before the show went live about Ian. Um, You made a couple of really good comparisons. Uh, I I wanted you to share your thoughts of, of Ian and uh, sort of the analogy you gave me.
1: Well, I told you, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, if someone asked me to describe uh, Finchie in four words, it would be pure class and total gentleman. And if they said, that's not enough, give us two more words, I would say amazing putter. Oh, my gosh, he could brush it with the best of them. And just just pure class. Great family man, incredibly handsome guy, but incredibly humble, and just just one of my absolute favorite people and Unfortunately, we've lost touch, but what little I watched off, I love his broadcast. he does such a great job and and uh please give him my best and tell him I love him.
2: I will absolutely do that now you you left one part of that out, right because yeah, if we could have had a designated putter. The world would have never heard of Tiger Woods, right?
1: Yeah, oh, I, look, you you tell him I said that. I mean, if I could have hit, he could have putted. Oh, my gosh, we'd have both been in the World Golf Hall of Fame years ago. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's just, awesome. You will
1: thoroughly enjoy him, as will your fans. He is just the greatest guy you could ever talk to and know.
2: Well, Tim, before I let you go, let our listeners know you're a wonderful teacher of the game now. Talk about how they can get a hold of you and then follow you, whether it's online or it's on social media.
1: Ask them not to call me until it's 97-degree weather gets out of Georgia.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> Wait no till doubt.
1: The um, no, they can go to my website online, TimSimpsonGolf.com, and and, you know, I don't promote myself. Anymore because it's like I'm getting too 64 to stand out in 98 degree weather, but uh, actually a dear friend of mine called me today and told me my son is up playing your golf course. You know I just wanted to let you know, and I said what time did he tee off this and that and little boy's 10, and I went out and introduced myself to him. I had met him since he was two in his little little pajamas at at the house one night, and um, anyway it it brought back. So many wonderful memories uh, for 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 me and for him, and to see this little ten year old hit a golf ball, I'm like, wow, you are way ahead of where I was at end. So that's what I miss about not being able to play, Chris. You know, I hadn't played in almost four years because of my three back surgeries. I can't play anymore. I hit balls three, four, five times a year, but. You know, to to be able to take your son out or a friend of mine's son or my grandchildren out, that's what I miss. That's what I really miss about the game.
2: Well, Tim, I always enjoy getting to spend time with you. It's always a privilege. It's always a lot of fun and very insightful. Uh, I hope you'll come back and join me again soon because you're a delight, my friend.
1: Well, anytime, Chris. And thanks for thinking of me. And you do a fabulous job on this show. There's no wonder why you have such an incredible following.
2: Well, I appreciate you saying that, Tim. You're the best. Take care, stay safe, and uh, look forward to catching up with you again soon, Tim.
1: Call me anytime. Thank you, Chris. Bye-bye.
2: Thanks, thanks, Tim. That's a great Tim Simpson, folks. It doesn't get much better than that. Um, TimSimpsonGolf.com is his website, and, um, you know, great ball striker, great, great in college. Obviously had a really good uh, career on the PGA Tour and a heck of a nice guy. And uh, I can't say enough good things about him, and I can't wait to get him back on the show. All right, before I get to my next guest, Ian Baker Finch, I want to give a shout-out to our friends at the Ben Hogan Golf Company. When Ben Hogan founded his company in 1953, his mission was to make the finest golf equipment in the world, and that remains their mission today. They forge every club they make to provide the feel and feedback investment clubs simply can not provide. And their craftsmen micromanufacture each club to your exacting specifications in their Fort Worth, Texas factory. You're only going to find Ben Hogan Golf Equipment online at BenHoganGolf.com. Visit them there today to learn about their great products and their great prices. I also want to give a shout out to our friends over at Golf Pride. In golf, lighter grip pressure releases power. Golf Pride engineered a secret that pros know. A larger lower hand encourages lighter pressure. Plus 4 technology is designed with four additional layers, which reduces tension in the lower hand to generate more power. Play Plus 4 and release the secret the pros know. Now available on Tour Velvet, the winningest grip on Tour. Grip confidence, grip golf pride. And folks, this segment of the show is sponsored by our friends over at the PGA Tour Superstore. <laughs>
1: show is brought to you by the PGA Tour Superstore. See why golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA Tour Superstore their golf pro
2: shop. Visit them online at PGATourSuperstore.com. Now back to
1: Chris and more of the show.
2: All right, now back with me is 1991 Open champion and a fantastic broadcaster now, Ian Baker Finch. Let me remind you about Ian's background. He's from Queensland, Australia, turned pro in 1979, and he credits Jack Nicholas as his greatest golf influence, saying he based his game on Mr. Nicholas's book, Golf My Way. He won his first professional tournament at the 1983 New Zealand Open, finished third in the World Series of Golf in 1988, and started playing regularly on the PGA Tour in 89, won his first PGA Tour event at the 89 Southwestern Bell Colonial, won the 1991 Open Championship at Royal Birkdale, finishing with rounds of 64 and 66, to win by two over fellow countryman Mike Harwood and three strokes over Fred Couples and Mark O'Meara. Following year, he finished uh, sixth at the Masters and second at the Players' Championship. In 2000, he was awarded the Australian Sports Medal for his achievement in Australian sports, and he's now clearly one of the best golf analysts in the business, and I'm very honored he is back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Ian, thanks for coming back on the show.
3: Thanks very much, Chris. Good to be with you, and thanks for having me on again.
2: So, Ian, um, I wanted to start out by, you know, kind of getting your thoughts about what we're seeing out on the PGA Tour right now. We've got Bryson DeChambeau bombing at 420 plus yards off the tee. We've got COVID, that the guy staying in the bubble. Um, A lot happening in and around the PGA Tour, which is sort of odd, and I say odd just because Guys hitting the ball over 400 yards off the tee isn't something we're used to seeing. What's your thoughts about what you're seeing on tour right now?
3: Well, as you've mentioned quite a few of the things that are, are interesting to watch. It's great that golf is back as the only sport on television at the moment. Um, I think that's a, a credit to the game of golf itself, how it is, uh, you know, available to everybody to be able to get out and. And lead a healthy lifestyle and and be a part of this great game. So that's that's a wonderful part about golf and the PGA Tour being back on television and back on CBS. And for me and the rest of the CBS team, it's great to be uh, you know a part of everyone's living rooms on the weekends now and and bringing golf to everybody and showing these great players and and showing the uh, the the talent out there. But it's strange in that there's no people out there watching them. So I think that to me is is the most interesting part of all of this.
2: Yeah, what's it like as a broadcaster, you know, only hearing sort of the odd clap, you know, from someone who's probably standing in their backyard watching watching the tournament. No no roars, nothing of, of that kind. Is it what's it like, you know, kind of being out there but there's you're you're missing all of the fan interaction.
3: Yeah, it's interesting. It's um I thought it was amazing about two weeks ago when Justin Thomas hold that 50-foot putt on the final green during the playoff against Colin Morikawa at the workday. And the only thing you heard was him yelling out his own expletives and his own excitement at holding the putt. Normally that would be a huge deafening roar and uh, we'd have 20 different Angles shown by CBS one all our great camera operators, uh, you know, showing the excitement in the crowd up there on the hill and Jack Nicholas and his wife, Barbara, and everyone around. And then all we had was the player's response or the caddy's response or, you know, 10 or other people around. So that part of it is really unreal. The one good thing is that we're getting to see all these great golf courses um, for what they are. Uh, we, we show great angles and great views of, of the great golf courses. And without crowds, you, you actually get to see the entire golf course. So I think that would be the only plus. For the players, it's got to be surreal. You know, they're out there like they're playing in a in a college tournament. In fact, a Tiger was asked about it. He said, uh, well, I had a few people following me in college as well. You know, and they said, is this like being back <laughs> in college? You know, Tiger always had a thousand people following him. Um, but it. But yeah, it's it's interesting to see and interesting to see how some players react better and and some worse to the surroundings.
2: Ian, do you think, and as you mentioned that uh, that putt from Justin Thomas at the workday? Do you think the lack of crowds is actually having an impact on the tournament? Here's why I say that. If if when Justin makes that putt and the crowd typically goes crazy, like you mentioned, it's got to be a lot different trying to then put another putt in on top of that for Morikawa with, you know, kind of battling that sort of roar and that sort of thing. It, does it make it, e- you know, somewhat easier? Is the pressure less because there was nobody out there. So it's easier to step up and make that putt. Mm, I
3: That's a very good question. An interesting one that I really can't give a, I can give a truthful answer. I don't know. But also, I think some players kind of relish the fact that it's just them and just their ability and just their inner thoughts or feelings. Whereas some are enhanced by the crowd reaction and that uh, enormity, you know, of what's going on around them and and the experience involved. So, I don't know at that time if it made Colin Morikawa's 20-foot putt any easier. Uh, I, I doubt it did, just because he still had to go do it, right? After right. all that. But I know, I know what you mean. It's a, it's a difficult one, and I, I don't really, I haven't seen a trend yet. Which ones, which players are playing worse with no crowds, and which players are playing better? We can only go with, you know, the results that we've
2: seen. Do you think we're headed towards a a patronless Masters? Do you think we'll have any patrons at that event, or do you think we're going to go without uh, fans or patrons throughout the the rest of the golf season?
3: Once again, I'd be guessing. Uh, I'm hoping that we have patrons by then. That will be the second week of November. Um, At least a, a limited number of patrons, perhaps. I don't know how we do the six feet apart at a golf tournament with thousands of people um, it's going to be different as it is being held in November as opposed to around Easter time in April um, I think the course will show beautifully it'll be something different uh, it'll be a lot of fun to cover on CBS uh, whether or not crowds will be a, a, available or, or allowed or. uh I don't know do they do they even do it if there's no crowds? I'm not sure, but that will be up to everyone at augusta national and you know it's just such a special tournament and great place I, I hope it happens, and I hope it happens with with people there to watch.
2: It's also a place that you've had some success during your playing days you You finished tied for seventh and ninety one tied for sixth and ninety two tied for tenth and ninety four Talk about the success that you had while you got the opportunity to be a part of the Masters.
3: Uh, I love playing there. I love the golf course. I, I first played there in 1985. Um, the greens were too fast for me. I was I grew up a country boy on Bermuda greens that were running about four and a half on the stint meter. Um, the surrounds of greens are better now than the greens I grew up on. So when I first started putting on fast greens, I I learned the game, and it's a different game, as, as people that know what I'm talking about can attest, going from slow Bermuda to very fast bent. But I was an aggressive putter. And when I got to the Masters, the greens were so fast and the lip outs were so severe that I never really putted well there. And I feel in 91 and 92, I really could have won had I not had as many three putts as I did. Uh, But the greens were in great shape. The golf course is just spectacular. You know, nothing better. And I always enjoyed being there. Um, I wasn't a long hitter. But um, most players could still reach the par fives. This is talking about the early 90s. Uh, Now it's with irons. But back then it was, you know, long irons and and fairway woods. But I I still think if I would putted a little better, if I hadn't been so aggressive, I, I may have had a chance to. To really win there Uh, but I I still enjoy going back each year and I get a chance to play there occasionally with friends and uh, to cover the tournament is uh, is a great privilege that's for sure.
2: You mentioned your first trip there in 85 do you remember when the uh, invitation came in the mail and what uh, your first drive up Magnolia Lane was like?
3: Yeah do I ever it was pretty amazing because I played well in the Open Championship the year before and uh had a chance to win and I uh, didn't, obviously. Seve so Ballesteros had won so well. But I, when I received uh, towards the end of that year the invitation for the Masters, it was a big deal because I was only just 24 years of age. And in those days, that was still young to be invited as an international player to come play. And the drive up Magnolia Lane and I had my friend from Australia come caddy for me and yeah, it was a very special time, uh, a memory I'll never forget. Uh, once again, I, I didn't putt well there. I, I played nicely, didn't putt well. I missed the cut. But first time at the Masters, I think for any player that you ask, Chris, on this show or any time you get a chance, they will always remember that first time up Magnolia Lane and, and their first time teeing off at the Masters.
2: And I read that you learned how to play the game by reading Jack Nicklaus's book, Off My Way. And then, mid 80s, early 90s, you're playing in major championship fields along with him. What was that like?
3: Yeah, very, once again, very special. He's become a very good friend and, and a friend of the family. We live in the same area now, down in Jupiter, Palm Beach Gardens area in Florida. And he and Barbara were instigated uh, our move here when we came back to do television. About twenty years ago, we came back to this area because of the Nicholases and their family and Jackie and all the brothers and sisters were a good friends. When I first had the chance to play with Jack, my idol, um, it was surreal uh, i couldn't believe it, but the first time Jack's caddy came over and asked me in nineteen eighty five at the open championship at royal St george's and he said, uh, "Jack's going out for a practice round. Would you like to come join him?" And I, I said, "Are you kidding me? I'd, I'd love to. I, I I don't remember this, but I probably dumped the other two Aussie friends that I had to go play with Jack. I don't <laughs> I don't know, but if I didn't, I, I would have. <laughs> you, you know what I mean. And just Jack and I went and played. And yeah, it was uh, great memories. And as I said, we, we played quite a few times over the years and I've, I've been uh, a member alongside him at the Bears Club down here in uh, in Jupiter, Florida for for a long while. I played with him there and, you know, just to now um, be a friend of my idol uh, is something extra special.
2: So you got to tell me you, you, you get an opportunity the first time to play with your idol in a practice round and, you know, you get sort of that, you know, out of nowhere invitation to go do it. What do you say to him? What do you what's what's the conversation like? You know, what's it like trying to put a peg in the ground to try to tee off and then talk to him throughout the rest of that practice round?
3: Um, I I remember a few bits and pieces along the way, but if you think I was twenty four and he's twenty years my senior, so he was more a a big brother, almost father figure in a way at that time and, and as my idol and playing in my – I played in the Open in 84, the Masters in 85. So it was only my third major championship um, to to play alongside him in a practice round and and pick his brain and get a feeling for that golf course. And uh, it was just a special afternoon for me, just uh, um, one one of those indelible memories as as a young – pro coming along, you know, at, at that time, I was just happy to be playing in an Open Championship. I wasn't a champion at that time. I was just one of the guys playing, and to be playing alongside the GOAT was something extra special.
2: And I want to talk about your 1991 Open Championship at Royal Burkdale. and you sort of burst into the lead thanks to a third round, 64, that included nine threes, and you finished Eagle Birdie. Talk about everything sort of coming together right then.
3: Yeah, it was amazing. I'd I'd had a great summer. I'd been playing well every week on the tour. And I'd lost in a playoff the week before that I I should have won. And, um, well, everyone always thinks they should win a playoff, shouldn't they? But in my mind, you know, I was playing well enough to win, put it that way. So I came in and I'd shot 71-71 the first two rounds but hadn't holed a putt. But no one was really putting well. The course was in great shape, but the greens were, were difficult to putt. And Birkdale was, is always windy and relentless. And I just found something on that homeward stretch. And on the second nine, uh, two-putted two uh, number of holes, you know, made a good putt from 30, 40 feet across the green on 17 for Eagle and then knocked it stiff, tap in for birdie at the last. I just felt in a good place. You know, I was, I was playing nicely, hold a few putts, uh, got into that last group on the Sunday, which I'd been in a couple of times before at, uh, at St. Andrews. And that just gave me a feeling of maybe this is the time. This is my chance. I'm playing well. I just have to go out tomorrow and uh, play the way I'd been playing.
2: So what was it like sleeping on a share of the lead going into the final round of the Open Championship? Particularly, you mentioned Seve earlier. Seve, who had to be the sentimental favorite, he was right there looming only two strokes back.
3: Yeah, it was, there was a lot of good players right there. Uh, Freddie Couples, Greg Norman, Eamon uh, Darcy from Ireland, uh, Mike Harwood, Mark O'Meara, who, who I was paired with in the final grouping um, on Sunday. There was, there was a lot of good players. And to me, it was a matter of just trying to treat it like I'd been playing, treat it like another PGA Tour event, treat it like a, a regular tournament, which is always hard to do at a major, and even harder to do when you're a chance or when you feel like you're playing well and a, and a, and a good chance of winning. So that was my main aim, and I was able to do that. Came out firing, you know, the next day and uh, got the job done. But it's—I I never worried about the sleep or the—you know—that never troubled me. I stayed with my wife Jenny and my little baby Haley. Jenny was pregnant with our second daughter Laura, and we were in a house, uh, just sort of treating it like a uh, a regular at-home week, as we tried to do, you know, during the majors. And um, my main aim, as I said, was just to go and play the next day the way I had been playing and. Put aside the fact that it was, the open,
2: and you say you came out firing the next day. You sure did. You you birdied five of your first seven holes. You went out in 29 and equal Tom Watson's record of 130 for the last 36 holes. I mean that's as good a golf as as you could possibly play. I mean you block everything out. You didn't hear? Did you hear anything? You know Seve's crowd, any mm-hmm. of that sort of stuff. Talk about just blistering the course. You came off a blistering round, and you did it again the next day. That's hard to do.
3: Yeah, it is, and that—that's um—that's the thing that uh, golfers struggle with. Um, well, most golfers, not Tiger, uh, not the guys that have won multiple times, they figure it out. But when you're trying to win your first major, there's so many distractions and I, I learned so much from playing with my friend Nick Faldo the year before in the final group again on the Sunday at St. Andrews. He he just went about it like uh, he was just playing like he knew he was going to win and nothing bothered him and I saw everything. I saw everything going on around me and, and he just sort of kept about his business and I think that's what really helped me the most in winning was having watched him the year before and seeing how clinical he made it and uh, how focused he was. So that's, that was the key to me was my breathing, focused on my breathing, focused on the shots I wanted to hit. Um, I had a big advantage going into the second nine. And I my goal was to just hit the fairway, hit the green and two putt, which I did all the way through. And then the 18th with a three-shot lead. I just played safe down the left rough, made sure I avoided the bunkers. Uh, laid up just short of the green, chipped on, two putted for five to uh, to win by two. So I I just did all of the right things. You know I, I focused well, concentrated well, and didn't let anything bother me.
2: That 18th hole, when you when you lay up short, you've got a three stroke lead. You're you're dry, you're safe. You know you can get up and down at four from there. You know probably in your sleep. What's it like walking up that 18th fairway knowing you're about to become the Open champion?
3: Um, All the way up to the very second to last shot, I I blocked it out. You know, I tried to enjoy it. I waved to all the crowd as you do. You know, the the grandstands, the bleachers there are are fantastic. The crowds are uh, second to none. But at the same time, I still kept telling myself, you still have to get this done. And uh I can tell you one, one story about the moment I had that little pitch from probably 35 yards to the hole. And uh I'm lining up and my caddy, Pete, who was just sensational, Pete Bender, great caddy, great friend. He said, uh, you know, you can just play it over there to the left of the bunker and, and two putt, you know. And I said, hey, if I can't pitch it over the edge of that bunker, I don't deserve to win the open. And uh, I hit a little lob wedge from a firm lie. I actually almost hold it and kind of hit the edge of the hole and ran a few feet by and two-putted for the bogey. But it, I still, in my mind, I still had to do it. I didn't allow myself to really enjoy it until the putt was in.
2: So I mean, you got to spend a year with a claret jug. What are some of the fun things that you got to do with that over the course of those 365 days? Did you, how many people drank out of it? What, what fun things did you do with it?
3: The the most important thing is I got to share it with friends and people that meant something to me and my family along the way. Uh, I got to leave it for extended periods of time at various clubs that I was a member of Lake Nona, uh, back home in Australia Uh, So I I got to share it around and um, got to drink lots of champagne, um, lots of cold Aussie beers and lots of great red wine with friends. I think that was the most memorable thing was I cherished it and I got to cherish it with my friends and family. And I still do. I I have a, a replica of course here in my office and, uh, We we share it with friends, certainly Open Championship Week, which I didn't get to do uh, last week, uh, this year, but um, toast the winner each year on, you know, drink a a fine bottle of red wine out of it. And I think, to me, that's the the most enjoyable side of it. It, It's a great trophy and a great honor to to hold it, but uh, to share it with friends and and people that uh, enjoyed the journey, that was the most important thing.
2: And just a couple more before I let you go. And we look ahead to this week at the the FedEx WGC event at TPC Southwind in Memphis. What do you expect to see at this week's tournament?
3: Well, as usual, I I expect to see the guys that strike it the best win. And that's what always happens uh, there in Memphis. It's a great golf course, especially with the Bermuda Greens since they changed them over the last 10 years or so, it's always the best ball strikers and the best drivers of the ball that win there. So I look forward to seeing that. Um, Once again, those guys that drive the ball so far, Dustin Johnson's had success there, Brooks Koepka, uh, Daniel Berger, who won at Colonial about a month ago, the first time back. They're the guys that play well there every year. So I look forward to seeing that. I think Colin Morikawa will do well. I think Bryson DeChambeau will do well. it's a good golf course, and it's a great championship. And, you know, of all of the events we play, the crowds there were spectacular. And we're not going to have crowds, but the people that run the event, that support the event, the volunteers, also all the FedEx uh, employees there in Memphis, they really get behind that tournament. It's really something special. Really enjoy going back there each year.
2: Yeah, and I read at the 2007 Barclays tournament while you were covering it for CBS, you got hit by an errant shot by Rich Beam in the cheek that momentarily <laughs> knocked you out. Do you, uh, you remind Rich of that every time you see him?
3: Uh, not every time. It's either he reminds me or I remind him. But, yeah, that was
2: pretty amazing.
3: I was about to interview uh, Bob Diamond, the head of Barclays, And uh, I I think he would have got it right in the middle of the face if I hadn't been in the way because the ball, you know, bounced back off the the scaffolding of the bleachers and hit me in the the side of the face. But if I'd been like two inches further back, it would have got Bob right in the mouth as he was facing me. But yeah, it was, um, I've been hit a couple of times on television. Actually, I got hit in the head in Australia by Bernhard Langer. I was doing an interview over the back of a green one time and he hit me in the head. I went down. So uh, I think that might be another record being hit in the head twice whilst, uh, you know, doing an interview on television.
2: <laughs> no doubt. Um, Ian, I don't know if you heard the end of my uh, conversation with Tim Simpson, but um, he said, you know, hey, if there were four words to describe Ian Baker Finch, it would be pure class and total gentleman. And if you had to ask me for two more words, it would be amazing putter. And uh, we were talking just prior to the show. He said, "You know, if uh, with my ball striking and and how well Ian could put, you could have put us both together, the world that would have never heard of Tiger Woods." Your thoughts about that?
3: <laughs> well, that's very kind of Tim to say. I miss him. I haven't seen him for so long because we both stopped playing the tour around the same time, uh, 20 years or so ago. He was injured and he had a terrible bout with Lyme's disease and uh, I lost my confidence and, and didn't play well enough to compete anymore, so I stepped down and stood away. But, yeah, there weren't any better ball strikers 30 years ago than Tim Simpson. He played really, really well. He was he was um, uh, an excellent straight hitter and a really solid iron player. And and had as he's right, if I'd putted for him, he would have won a lot of times, that's for sure. So uh, I hope he's well. I hope his family's well. Uh, you, you, you meet so many great guys out here on tour over the years, and we're all one big happy family when we're out here. But when you move off, move aside, I've been very fortunate doing the telecasts and being a part of television for so many years that I've kind of stayed in touch with the tour and, and all the players. But those that have stepped aside or got old like myself and got gray hair and gone and look after their children and grandchildren, I, I miss them. You know, you really... Uh, it really is a, a big family out here on tour.
2: Ian, before I let you go, let our listeners know how they can stay up to date with all the great things that you're doing and follow you, whether it's online or it's over social media.
3: Oh, sure. Well, you can follow me from three to six p.m. Eastern any weekend on CBS. That's the that's the best way you can follow the PGA Tour and, and listen in. Uh, I'm not a big social media guy. I don't self promote, but um, I'm at AB Finchy. Um, on Twitter and, uh, post a lot of shots of my grandchild, little Eloise on Instagram. And, but, uh, once again, I'm, I'm not selling anything. I'm just uh, happy to be a part of the, the telecast on CBS. We have a wonderful family led by Jim Nance, who we all know. And, uh, just, just a, a happy band there at CBS doing what we love to do and, and calling the golf for our fans and everyone back home on the weekends.
2: Well, Ian, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to come back and be a part of the show. It's always fun spending time with you. I hope we get the privilege of catching up with you again sometime soon.
3: Anytime, Chris. Thank you very much.
2: Take care, Ian. All the best to you and your family. Stay safe out there.
3: And to you too, sir. Thank you.
2: Thanks, Ian. That's the great Ian Baker Finch. Um, You know, you want to talk about a guy who had a tremendous playing career and is now, like I say, one of the, in my mind, for my money, the best golf analyst out there, whether it's on radio or it's on television, the guy just does a tremendous job painting the picture for us every week of what's happening out there on the PGA tour. And then, you know, giving us insightful analysis as well. So it teaches us something. Plus it paints a great picture. Ian's a, uh, like, like Tim Simpson said, you know, at the end of his uh, his interview, Ian's a wonderful person and a great guy. And uh, it's uh, always a privilege to get to spend some time with him. Hopefully we get that privilege again real soon. I hope uh, I'll reach back out to him. Maybe we can get him on the show. If, if we have a Masters this year, he would be a great guest to have on around that time. All right, before I close up shop tonight, I want to give a couple of more shout outs. First to our new sponsor over at Finn Cycles. It's time to rethink golf. The game is at a tipping point. The young people we need in the game don't have four and a half hours to spend out on the course. Pairing Finn Cycles with a desire to play ready golf can cut playing time in half because all golfers go directly to their own golf ball. Plus, it's tons of fun. Go online to finscooters.com and click on Find a Fin for a course that has them near you. I also want to give another shout out to our friends over at the McLemore. The McLemore Top community rests atop the highlands of Lookout Mountain, Georgia, overlooking historic McLemore Cove and Pigeon Mountain. Surrounded on all sides by state and national parks, historic land districts, and private land trusts, the resort features an 18-hole Reese Jones and Bill Bergen championship course, a gated residential community, and a planned clubhouse opening in the fall of 2020, plus planned hotel and conference center. The dramatic 18-hole course is made up of a variety of golf experiences, combining canyon holes, highland holes, cliff edge holes that are well-suited for the beginning golfer as well as the senior player. McLemore also offers a wonderful six-hole short course called the Cairn. Designed by Bill Bergen, the Cairn provides players with a short warm-up or cool-down before or after a round, or a relaxing way to improve one's game with family and friends. McLemore is located a short driving distance from Atlanta, Nashville, Knoxville, Birmingham, and Huntsville, and just 35 minutes from downtown Chattanooga, voted number one best town in America two years in a row by Outside Magazine. While a private course, McLemore offers stay-and-play packages for guests in club-managed properties, as well as a number of membership opportunities, including social memberships, non-resident memberships, and corporate memberships as well. For more information, please visit McLemore online at com or give them a call at 800-329-8154. All right, folks, it is time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the T. want to send out my sincere thanks again to Tim Simpson and Ian Baker Finch for joining me tonight. Please check out our website, nextonthetea.net, to keep up to date with what our guest schedule looks like. You can also stream us on a number of great sites and apps like podcast.co, and can't thank those guys enough for their great support of the show. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podpeen, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Audioboom, Player.fm. And I also want to welcome Radio.com as a new platform offering our show as a podcast as well. Folks, thank you again for choosing to listen to this show tonight. We really appreciate the fact that you're continuing to make us a part of your golfing content. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends.